Hasn't 2020 been a year of surprises? Not all of them great, of course, but the property market has, for the most part, defied all of the dire predictions that were made around a quarter of the way through this roller coaster year. In this episode, Chris and I will take a look at what lessons we've learned, not just this year, but the bumpy ride we've been on extending back to the end of the last boom. What can we expect in 2021? Will more money flow into the market through ease lending restrictions? Will it all go so crazy that APRA and or ASIC will need to intervene at the end of 2021? And one thing that's really worth sticking around for today is the Elephant Rider Bootcamp. In a rising market where you have to move fast, how on earth do you work out what to pay and then avoid paying too much? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The elephant in the room.com.au. Well, Chris, we are recording this. What date is it? It's the 10th of December, I do believe. The year almost everyone in real estate is pretty much saying, look, I want to hang up my boots right now. With <laughs> that's such yeah. a big year. I'm I just want to take a holiday right now. I think everybody's shutting up shop quicker than they norm- or earlier than they normally do. Let's go back because at the beginning of the year, I have to say that the end of this year in some regards actually feels like the beginning of the year when it was gangbusters and clearance rates were over 80% in Sydney. Um, you know, we were definitely looking like we were on the crest of a, another huge wave. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're right at the start of 2020. It's feeling like the end of 2020. I think... Um, it's funny you say you want to go on holidays now, the 10th of December. I've seen over the last few years, clients have actually bought really well in this next, you know, couple mm. of weeks. I'm sure you find that pre-Christmas run up. There's, um, you know, vendors want sort of certainty going into Christmas and buyers are, you know, willing to, deals can be made, I guess. Is that what you usually see this time? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I was talking with Megan Wells last night doing one of our Facebook lives and she was saying how, how many deals they do on Christmas Eve. Um, yep. because it's like at that final moment where people say, oh, God, yeah, yeah, I, I want it sorted. I just want to go into the holidays knowing it's done, knowing what, what uh, I've got a clean slate for moving into the next year. And that is the normal sort of December last-minute run at it. And But I think people are just, you know, they're fatigued. They've, yeah. So many people are just, agents have been saying now for quite a few weeks, and we, we're always contacting agents looking for off-market properties. Obviously, you've got to be vigilant um, in your pursuit of those and just be on the case all the time. And so weeks ago, my team were feeding back to me to say, look, the agents, that some of them are just saying we're just giving up and we're just listing for next year now. So yeah. and that's really unusual. Normally agents would just go full pelt, list, sell, list, sell, list, sell what they can. Um, but to, for them to say, you know what, we're shattered. Isn't it this year everyone hasn't had the holidays, they haven't had the break um, and they're just, you know, trying to get, get themselves through to Christmas. But I guess if you are in the market, this is probably going to come in after that anyway. But yeah, hopefully you've uh, got the deal before Christmas because a lot of sellers, uh, you know, don't want to then have to wait till February to then relist, especially if all the agents go on holidays. So 
I guess the really interesting thing, before we talk about 2021, I think it's valuable to go back in time and, you know, we've been doing this podcast, I think it's three years in in May, I think it is. So, um, you know, 2018 was a really interesting year. You had the Royal Commission, um, Sydney, Melbourne were coming off the 2012 to 17 boom. Um, that's when all the doomsday talk was rife, you know, 30, 40% falls. Um, you know, a lot of that was driven by the tightening of credit. Um, and, you know, because banks were freaking out and borrowing capacities were much tighter. And, um, yeah, and so when we went into that sort of early 2019, you know, Sydney and Melbourne were down like 15%. A lot of that was the fear around the sort of election um, and who was going to win and Labor were likely to win. So I think... You know, if you think about now, eighteen months later, I think it's it's interesting to even talk through what's happened over that period because you know the next few years, similar things are going to happen. You know, things are going to pop up, and mm. people are going to be worried, over worried about this or that. And um, yeah, so that that sort of pre-election time was really interesting, wasn't it? Absolutely, it was. And and look, I get really frustrated because in this business, you know, I've been in real estate now for twenty years, and I watch these cycles go up and they go down, and they go yeah. up and they down and people sit on their hands when they're down and they all rushing and climbing over each other to buy when it goes up again and, and each time the market slows down I say people don't you get it this is not the end of the road it mm. continues and if you find good opportunity now you're in a in the box seat because you're not competing for it you get to choose you get to take your time to properly evaluate the property properly work out what it's worth properly negotiate for it and why are you waiting to see what's going to happen? I can tell you what's going to happen. At some point, everyone's going to get off their hands at the same time and prices are going to rise. So it, it's like this is inevitable. That is inevitable. When that happens, no one knows. How much the the increase and over what period of time, no one knows. But we all know what the cycle does and what human beings do. And so I find that incredibly frustrating and it's the same deal at the moment. You know, everyone's panicking and so they're paying whatever for anything. And it's mm. like, don't. This is what people were doing in 2016 and 17. Some of them had their pants around their ankles when the market suddenly hit the skids, you know, mm. and, and they were very uncomfortable. And, and that's the moment where you look and you think, what did I buy? Was I really thinking clearly when I bought this? You know, mm. does this really suit me? And even forget the price you paid for a moment. Does this really suit me? Is it a good asset? Is it really the property I want to live in for 10 years or whatever? These questions are not what's going through your head when it's FOMO, you know. These are not the logical questions that should be going through your head. They're not going through your head. And instead in 2018, everyone's sitting on their hands and I'm like, oh, my God, I just give me your hand. Let me lead you to water. Please take advantage of these conditions. Mm. <laughs> they don't want to do it, you know. So I think. What is interesting, though, is all the economists, and, and you and I, we do this full forecaster report every year, and I can't wait to do 2021's version yeah. of what. I've been compiling some very interesting reports and predictions throughout this year. Mm. But, you know, we do this, and, and just to point out that anyone who thinks they're predicting what's going to happen in the market at any point, you know, is, is really just basically trying to get a headline because there's really no other point to it. Yeah. However, I mean, obviously big businesses and banks or whatever do do their modelling and they have to have these scenarios so that they can actually make their decisions, but then they will trot out and, and make these, these uh, scenarios public. And I've I got this theory, I, I, people will do what people do. We're all sheep, you know, where they're mm. running rampant and, you know, all the predictions and all using the big data and all that sort of stuff 
can only go so far because at the end of the day, human beings reacting en masse is really what drives the property market. Yeah, it's interesting. Our episode with Michael Yardney, we had a really good chat at the height of sort of the fear around COVID and, you know, the worrying around, um, you know, even just human health was a huge worry there, right, let alone the property market. And he made an interesting point where he just said, look, at some point, I can't remember the line he said, like it was like a invisible line where things will flip the other way, mm. people, confidence will come back, people will start transacting, people will be, you know, jobs will be opening up, et cetera. We don't know when that line is, but it's going to come at some point. And um, you know, obviously we've crossed that line. I think pre-election in 2018, you have to argue that uh, 2019, that was arguably one of the best times to buy, right? Like as you had, um, yeah, obviously Labor were going to win, negative gearing changes, CGT, um, whole Royal Commission, responsible lending was rife. There was all worry about the interest only cliff. Um, but then as soon as literally Liberal won that election, I guess it was kind of like a tri- triple sort of assault. You had the APRA changes, reducing, um, you know, assessment rates, which increased borrowing capacities. Then we had a, you know, double interest rate cut. All the lenders relaxed because they were like, well, we're not going to get in too much trouble about the Royal Commission. Um, and then prices started rising and FOMO kicked in. So all late last year you know i think prices probably rose you know pretty much back to what they were in 2017 so like about 15 percent. is that what you saw veronica in that sort of late last year yeah absolutely i mean i think what was interesting as we headed into the end of 2016 the market went gangbusters right up to christmas in, in much the same yeah. way it has done this year but i think what led it to go gangbusters really was it was overheated and there'd been two interest rate drops that year and i think that they yeah. really spurred the market along and continued that boom And then, of course, you get into 2017, and I think that was a natural end to the boom. Um, But obviously underlying it did have APRA, you know, pulling the strings when it came to um, lending. So that was all happening, but it was was quite slow and protracted in its actual uh, impact. Mm. But there was a bit of that warning sign at the end of 2016. You know, when, when the market's overheated at a time when it, even in a hot market it usually slows down, then you think, oh, dear, what's going on here? And and markets do get to a point where they get ahead of themselves and then they, they will correct because that, that's sort of the whole premise of that, right? So that, that's yeah. back then. And, of course, it re- we felt it and I felt it in what we were seeing on the ground and we always feel it before it's reflected in the data. We felt it in May and I've got all my notes because every month we write notes for our clients when we're doing our pricing research. We accompany that, what's happening right now, how does that fit in the bigger picture? And Mm. certainly we felt that in May 2017. The official figure is that the end of the boom is July 2017. So we, we effectively felt it on the ground. We felt that we tracked mm. fire interest. We felt that change two months before it actually is reflected in the data. Yeah. And so then, of course, it's like some people say like trying to catch a falling knife. You know, it sort of peaks and it's like, whoa, I don't want to buy now because, you know, if I wait two months, it might be cheaper then. Or if I wait six months, it might be cheaper then. And then mm. vendors that are caught in the crossfire because the people that listed in one set of market conditions are trying to sell in a different set of market conditions. It's that sudden. And so they're all freaking out. So there's this period of weirdness in the market. Then you get people taking the listings off and then you get, and we had all this at the beginning of COVID. That's exactly right, 100%. Same behaviour. So those that had to sell were under pressure and agents would, honestly, agents would just hammer them, you know, this is going to get, it's never going to get any better. This is yep. the worst thing in 50 years. And this, this said by people in their late 20s, you know, really, 
<laughs> you weren't even alive when there was a recession. And, you know, there's all this fear-mongering going around. And, and yeah. I, I gathered some of this stuff. You know, I was like, oh, my God, you, you people are not experts in this area. You really need to stick to your knitting and just do what your job is to do, find a buyer, sell a property, stop predicting because you don't know what you're talking about and all this stuff going on. And so you see this flux, this weirdness. You get some good prices, some really terrible prices, lots of people taking their property off the market. And then, of course, vendors aren't going to put their property on the market because they're not confident they're going to get their price. Well, that's exactly what's happened, right? So you've, late last year, you know, prices were rising fast, you know, FOMO was kicking in again, people were getting frustrated. Um, you know, early this year, it was a hot market. You know, we had low interest rates. You know, they're much lower now than they were, but we're talking – you know, home loans around, you know, low threes. Mm. Um, now they're low twos. But yeah. <laughs> um, and that was driving the market and it was, you know, and people were going, well, you know, we've got to get in, et cetera, all that sort of FOMO was there. And then bang, COVID hit, confidence crash, massive increase in fear, unemployment spike. The thing that was really interesting at this point in time, I didn't think it would ever happen, but I didn't think it was possible, was the payment holidays. That was a real key. Yes, JobKeeper, you know, kept the incomes going. You know, yes, JobSeeker, uh, you know, small business sort of cash back, all these sort of stimulus things. But I think this payment holidays was a key thing in COVID that really protected the property market and everyone getting, you know, six months off paying their mortgage and plus the ridiculously low fixed rates that were on offer. You know, we're talking low twos, which kind of led into that sort of thing you just spoke about there where, you know, there was low low listings already, you know, the last few years of quality assets, there's just a inherent undersupply of, you know, good properties. And I've said this before, though, but if you look back, PriceFinder have these graphs and Kent Lardner is mm. the guy that invented them. And he said in Suburb Trends that he's got these graphs, which are the, oh, no, he does have these graphs on Suburb Trends, which shows sales volumes over the years. And, yeah. you know, you can clearly see, and we felt that back in 2016, that volumes in 2017 over 16 were a third down. Across the board, every suburb pretty much, Volumes were a third down in 2017 over 16, and they've mm. never recovered from that. Yeah, that's been yeah. four years. We've had that, and fairly consistent. Even if you look at now transactions through that time, even through COVID, the transactions largely are pretty consistent. Now I can only talk about Sydney and inner Sydney, but yeah. I think that goes in the face of like you're saying there. We're used to low volumes, but we're still talking about them. Yeah, we didn't get any four sales really, like because of the payment holidays, because of. People couldn't really move, so they were like, well, I can't transact here. I can't downsize or upgrade and, mm. you know, I don't have to sell my investment property because I've got the payment holiday. So, you know, the, all that rife fear of there's going to be this, everyone's going to be dr- selling their property, it just didn't happen. If anything, people went the opposite. They actually, was, you know, uh, new home sales with Home Builder went through the roof. There was a very successful property for the liberal, liberal government, even though we don't think it's successful for the people you know, taking that offer up. Um, <laughs> And, um, you know, there's a huge renovation boom, right? Like, yeah. you know, you can see it around. All the tradies are flat chat and, you know, everyone's renovating their homes, you know, low rates, spending a lot of time at their home. But I think the lockdown in 2020, the big learnings, obviously, this work from home. And when you could see it in the search data right at the height of the boom, uh, the COVID where, you know, everyone was, you know, search, search was really high on REA. You could see, you know, they do amazing charts. And so I think that, that sort of work from home thing, I don't think it's going to go away. And I do think it's changed by preferences long term. Yeah. I mean, what's your, what are you seeing, I guess, Veronica? Is that something you think is going to snap back to like old times or do you think it's going to stick in? No. And I think one of the things that we've found through interviewing so many people on this podcast 
this year in particular, obviously mm. with COVID, is that COVID has accelerated things that would have taken a decade to happen yeah. otherwise. And that's come through so many of our guests in, in all the different areas of expertise. And so that's a, that's a really interesting thing. And I think the work from home movement, if you want to call it a work from anywhere movement, yeah. it's certainly um, embedded itself now just generally. It's an expectation that we will have more flexible working arrangements. If we go into the office, it will be less than five days a week and and you can choose to live in Brisbane if you want to and work in Sydney or you know however it works so so there's that flexibility and I certainly um you know when we did I did the episode with Megan Wells a couple of weeks back talking about Brisbane for instance there's obviously been massive demand for family homes in Brisbane yeah a lot of them from Melburnians, you know, after the lockdown, but Sydney siders as well and probably from elsewhere and returning expats for that matter. And and because Brisbane prices have always been somewhat um, hampered by by the lack of, I guess, the big employers and the big jobs being up there and so therefore big incomes. And now there's there, that's opening up that flexibility for people on big incomes to actually live there and work flexibly. So, so mm. that is changing the dynamic of places like Brisbane and it's also changing the dynamic of places like Newcastle and and not not even in these cities. It's actually changed the dynamic in in you know southern highlands in the yep. coast uh, up at Byron Bay. I mean, people are now taking advantage of their long-held dreams to do these sea change and tree change. And you know, and so this is it's a dilution in a way, but the weird thing is that I'm finding is that quite often, you know, we'll look at a, a property that's coming on the market for a client and we'll say, well, you know, what, what's the vendor story? What's, why, you know, why are they mm. now? Where, where are they upgrading? What's, what's the deal? Oh, no, they're moving out of Sydney. But there's plenty of people to fill their homes. You know, there's this demand yep. for people cooped up at home with their kids, with their partner, working, everything, schooling at home to just burst out of the gates as soon as lockdown ended to so say, I need more space. Yeah. So it's like space is the... The currency, like that's the big thing that's valuable. But mm. but I just before I sort of hand over you again, the issue with this is that we've got a two tier market. You know, we've got family homes and larger homes and yep. larger apartments doing very very well across the board, and yep. got small one bedroom apartments. Or agents are telling me they don't even want to list them. Property managers are telling me nobody wants to rent them. So one bedroom apartments, and this comes back to that space is what people yep. want. Well, nobody wants a one-bedroom apartment. And then it's like two-bedroom apartments. Well, fine. Somebody previously would have rented, say, a one-bedroom apartment mm. now can afford a two-bedroom for the same yeah. money to get the space. <laughs> That's great. But there's a massive supply of two-bedroom apartments in a lot of areas. And yeah. this is a problem with oversupply. And now it's coming home to roost that there's been too much really poorly thought out and poorly built stock in concentrated in areas. So these... So, I mean, when you look, look at the listings numbers back to sales volumes, the listings num listing numbers in some areas of apartments is through the roof, mm. both in the rental and the sales side. So we talk about the boom, we talk about FOMO, we talk about this this prices rising, um, you know, clearance rate rising across every capital city. Basically, there's there's demand for houses. It is not the same for apartments and it's also got to be no. out of rings when there's loads of supply and high levels of debt. Yeah, I think yeah, I think the work from home sort of changed, the flexible work now becoming, um, you know, much more confident that if you swap jobs, your next job's going to offer you flexible work because that's the big thing. You, you can move further away from the city, but if you want to change jobs or you have to change jobs, 
Can you get another job that offers flexible work? And before COVID, I don't think that was, you were confident to yeah. do that. So you would ultimately have to stay around the city because of that future work change. But I think you know, that's really been the best thing for housing affordability and to take the pressure cooker out of the inner rings of our city. And the, you know, for the first time buyers, it was becoming a real negative to living in Sydney because there was no real solution that people were working towards. You know, I can't live in the Central Coast because I can't commute five days a week and have a good, you know, work-life balance. Um, I just can't see it happening. So, you know, but then they can't leave the city because they don't want to lose their employment, which is important for their family, right? So it was a really problem that was just kind of, you know, growing. And I think what what we've seen is a lot of our first-time buyers are now, you know, they thought about moving to, say, the Central Coast or North of Wollongong or other places, but they just didn't have the confidence to do it. But we've seen a complete shift. So I think that's going to definitely stick around, but it's not going to be the whole of Central Coast, the whole of Newcastle, et cetera. It'll only be the stuff that people are going to willing to leave Sydney for. You know, you're not going to move to Central Coast and then live in a, you know, a suburb nowhere near the beach, not in a great place, and then still have to commute. You want something nice if you're going to make that move. Um, and I guess the, the interesting thing is that there's been very low stock in these areas as well. So it doesn't take much for an increase in demand to start to really push prices up, which you've we've already started to see. So then that, you know, reduces the likelihood if you're going to move to the Central Coast if prices aren't that much cheaper, you know what I mean? So <laughs> it's, um, I think ultimately the people thought that because of now work from home, the inner ring and the good properties are going to uh, not be as desirable, but arguably they're even more desirable now because there's so much people in apartments and their, their life is demographics, you know, people are getting older and people are having families and they need more space. And there's been this sort of people have been stuck in things that are too small and ultimately if they get an opportunity to upgrade in something a bit bigger, um, they'll take it. And so all the the houses that aren't compromised in the inner rings and along the beaches will still do really well because ultimately all the lifestyle benefits of living in Sydney. Um, and a lot of people who aren't, who aren't from Sydney don't want to move outside of Sydney. So, you know, people moving here from all over the world, that's why they're living in Sydney because they, you know, the lifestyle benefits and they want to live around the sort of water and the city and where it's all happening. So they don't really want to move to Southern Highlands or, um, you know, Wollongong. They want to be in the action. The Northern Beaches is, is a really interesting case study on this, you know, because that's always been an issue. What, what has always been an issue there is public transport and, you know, the sheer, uh, the pain of the commute has, some people have, uh, the lifestyle has been, strong enough or, or desirable enough for them to overcome that pain and other people have made the move and then realise that the lifestyle doesn't make up for the pain of that. Now that that pain is diminished and it hasn't diminished because there's been a nice new train line or something being built, it's diminished because of the need to commute. And so I think that areas such as the North Beaches where you happen to buy in at a perfect time, um, you know, that potentially that's going to be a sustainable change in terms of how buyers view that area because it's there's been a lot of over the years I've spoken to so many buyers like I would move, move there but I only but the problem is of course the commute so that's gone that obstacle is gone I would think that the continued demand for those those areas is going to be there and I think too certainly within sort of the the two k sorry the two k the two hour drive the CBDs across the board you know that that sort of mm overcomes that that tyranny of distance is is enough to put up with for a couple of days but certainly not a five-day commute and the lifestyle will outweigh you know will certainly though the importance of lifestyle i think has really come to the fore as more important than the commute 
And so that's a, that's a shift. It's interesting that something's got to be locked in though, right? Because I think it's just this week I was reading about a law firm that is trying to make it 60, 40, 60 at work, 40 at home. So that's still three commutes you've got to make of an hour and a half. So that's still 10 hours a week of commute. Versus, I, say, you know, yeah. city, you know? Look, I agree. I, I honestly think even for me, I, I, I would not want to feel like I had to do it even two days a week personally. Mm. But that, yep. some people I agree. I think that that might be more more palatable than say five days a week. Let's face it. So you know, let's let's see. But I do think that that will be a more of a systemic change or structural change. The other thing that I think is really pointed out, if you do go back and look at the sort of the the rising peak up to July two thousand seventeen, as officially recorded, and you see the down the decline right up till the end of two thousand eighteen, and I I retrospectively just before the election in two thousand nineteen, which is in May, if anyone's forgotten, I retrospectively actually did some research on properties that bought and sold between the last six months of the peak, I think it was, and then within that downturn time to look at the proportion that it sold at a loss um, versus at a gain or the same money, et cetera, et cetera. And I could see the tipping point had happened actually in really bang on December 2018. You could actually see it in this data mm. was the bottom of the market. But, of course, we never see the bottom until it's in the revision mirror. And yep. so, you know, and I, and I did this analysis, I think it was in April, and I did um, I, I wrote a piece on it. And then the next thing is the election happens and then we had a surprise outcome and bang, it takes off again. So, But I could already see that things were changing. So, mm. so therefore, it's hard to know what would have happened had Labor got in. Certainly, I don't yeah. think we would have had a marked change that we had. It would have been more gradual. But, yeah, but sure. we were already experiencing a change and a turnaround. It just was a very slow turnaround. So I think what, though, the consistency, and if you think back to the messages that we were getting from our guests and obviously imparting when mm. we started the podcast in the beginning of 2018, was that quality property and good locations, the importance of those two things, right? So, and the location on its own is not enough. The quality property is really, really important. They're the properties that stand the test of time. They're the properties that don't fall in value as much. They're the properties that are still in demand in a market like in 2018. And so that's that's the stuff that never changes. So right now we see people fighting over stuff on main roads again. 2018, people wouldn't touch something on a main road. It'd take forever to sell. You know, these principles, they play out and people do the same things and make the same mistakes every single, you know, cycle. It, it, there's nothing new in any of that. And mm. I listened to a podcast that Stuart Weems on his Investopoly podcast recently. It was based, you know, basically how to prepare for 2021. And he was basically saying... Mm. Change is inevitable. We keep talking about unprecedented. Well, you know, the GFC was unprecedented and um, September, you know, 9-11, the, the towers falling was unprecedented and this is unprecedented. Everything's unprecedented. You know, whenever mm -hmm. it's a, a crash in the stock market, for instance, is unprecedented. But what is never unprecedented is the reaction. Mm. You know, we, we all experience change. The magnitude varies. The cause of that change varies, but the human reaction to that change and uncertainty is pretty predictable. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. We go through the same sort of emotional cycle. Um, and I guess it's trying to just not be, you know, that things is always a better day coming, I guess, and not act irrationally. I think of that when the fear was at its highest, we had a couple of clients called out um, who bought before they sold. Um, and so maybe they bought in January or February and then they were planning to sell in March mm. um, or April. 
and they were just getting low ball offers. And they were both good assets. One was a place in near you, Ronakoon Roselle, and the other one was, you know, a good apartment in Bondi, like a you know nicer, really quiet street, nice outlook. So, um, yeah, I remember both of those were probably sold. I guess as a percentage turn, fifteen or twenty percent higher than what the offers they were getting in the middle of COVID, just a few mm-hmm. months later. Yeah. Both of those that probably wish they held on to those properties a bit longer, but they couldn't really digest the big mortgages on both of them. So yeah. um, And that's a big it's a big call, isn't it? You know, that's that's you've got pressures coming from all all sides and you can understand why some people chose to take those offers and you can also equally understand why people who didn't weren't in that position where they had to while yeah. they said, No, nah, I'm gonna wait. Yeah, that's right. And if you could have waited out through that fear cycle, you know, you would have been much better, and if you could have got to when it's their market's hot again, like it is sort of getting there, um, yeah, I think obviously you get a better result. I think that the last six months, I don't think it's going to be like next year. I think there's going to be a bit, um, it's not probably good news for first-time buyers. I think, um, you know, a real opportunity for them was in that last six months where um, a lot of upgraders weren't in the market, a lot of investors weren't in the market. Um, and so the only people really out there willing to buy was, a lot of it was first-time buyers. Um you know, a lot of upgraders had to sell their property to um, then get ready and buy something else or they wanted to wait till they could see good quality properties on the market. Um, there's been very little investors in the last six months. We've mm. started to see it in the last couple of months. Um, but, you know, and, and that's been a good thing. When, when there's low investors in the market, it means that, you know, there's only other two real key markets where there's, you know, upgraders and downsizers and first-time buyers, you know, and so... There's less competition when you're out there buying, but I, I think that's going to really change next year just because of, you know, which we'll talk about all the things going into 2021. So well, it's going yeah. to be different. Well, it's interesting what you say about investors because obviously that the last boom was heavily fueled by investors. 100%. And certainly they are the, you know, they were the biggest pressure on first home buyers was investors because often the same type of property they were going for. And that was hard. That was hard for first home buyers and, it did inflate prices beyond where they should have been. And, you know, I'd spoken to a number of agents soon and some of them, like one in Bondi Beach, for instance, was saying that, you know, at, at the height of it, you know, she was saying she reckoned 90 to 95% of the property she was selling was to investors. And yep. that, that's ridiculously high. That's that's unsustainably high and that's dangerously high. So, you know, that's a sign for, you know, people not to be <laughs> to pull out and wait, you know, um, because yep. there's this popular theory that investors don't overpay. But, you know, this is just as emotional as anybody else, really. FOMO well, if they're winning 90% of properties, they're probably overpaying because that's how you win it. Um, oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I think you're right, and that's what caused APRA to really um, – they didn't really target home buyers. What really targeted home buyers was the Royal Commission um, and uh, responsible lending, mm. and that's what really yeah. took this. And, um, and also affordability because, um, you know, when you're buying a house at $1.5 million and the rates were much higher than they are today, um, people are like, well, I can't really justify buying a two-bedroom terrace at 1.6, you know. Like I think there was a natural sort of, which you spoke about, the slowing down the market to let wages sort of catch up till things are a bit more affordable. Mm. But, I mean, I think if, the, if investors do come into the market with a lot of steam next year, I think that's something that APRA will look to target. But, you know, a lot of investors, are, you know, they can't borrow anywhere near what they could buy borrow mm. in that boom. You know, you could have borrowed 10 times salary um, in 2014, yeah. which is just crazy. If you're on 300 grand a year, you could borrow $3 million. Um, <laughs> today, that's probably closer to 1.8. Maybe, you know, if you go to a few lenders, maybe you could borrow maybe 2.2, 2.3, like 
if you know what you're doing, but it's not 10 times salary. So investors haven't got that sort of same borrowing capacity like they did back then. Well, also the rents are down. So therefore that it does impact on their cash flow. So that's that's a change too. But it's funny, you just reminded me that I did write a blog um, and I'll put the link in the show notes if anyone's interested in going back in time because I wrote a blog at the, begin- at the end of 2016 and it was um, talking about the, the embarrassed buyer or something, embarrassed buyer syndrome because what we were finding is that agents were coming to us and saying, I think it was the end of 2016, it might have been 2017, but anyway, I'll, I'll find it. Agents were coming to us at auction and saying, um, I don't know what happened, but I just lost my three best buyers. And it was happening across the board. And and they had no idea why they lost these buyers. Whereas we've been dealing with our clients and we've been finding that our clients thought they were ready to buy. And then we'd find a property and one of the first things we do is let the broker know, look, this is what we're looking yeah. for. This is where the auction is. We might be making an offer, blah, blah, blah. This is what this is our plan. Do you see any obstacles? And it, one by one, every single broker was going. Oh, hang on a minute, we've got to we've got to lodge a whole heap more paperwork, and and that would slow down their approval. So these are people that thought they were approved, had approved, uh, yeah. and it slowed down pretty much across the board. They all slowed down by about a month until we could they could get back in proper shape to actually buy. Mm. So we had to sort of cool our jets on these properties. But when we were ready, we'd go to auction. And the agent had sort of bit like bemused, oh, I don't know what's happened. I've just lost my three best buyers. Like mm. I'm thinking, I know what's happened. They've gone at the last minute because buyers usually get stuff out of order and they go and at the last minute go, oh, yeah, but just check with my broker. That's all good. And the broker said, oh, no, you can't go and buy that. You won't get that much money. And they got shit and they've pulled the pin, right? And so I actually put together this presentation and I went around to some of these agencies and said, look, you know, I've got a little secret for you. This is what's going on. It's the embarrassed buyer syndrome. Try asking a few different questions. And they'd come back to me and go, oh, are you kidding me? Like, this is it. The buyer doesn't want to admit they haven't been able to get finance. And they're sort of, they scratching their heads. They didn't even know why. Mm. So this was a really interesting thing that we started. What was that year again? Sorry, was that 2016? Actually, while we're talking, you just chat away. I'll just look it up the blog and I'll tell you exactly when I wrote it. So Yeah, so I mean it's that is a hundred percent what's happening now. It's it's um you know, A we're busy as a business, but I think the you know, and we're trying to but the thing that's really chewing up our kind of our you know, our hours of work is dealing with banks and the banks have all got flooded with work because there's been a refinance war going on through COVID. I mean, everyone probably was seeing cashback offers. They've all sort of, you know, marketing. The banks are marketing through the roof. Every time you turn the TV on or you look at ads everywhere, you can see the banks. And so all the banks are trying to steal each other's customers. They're offering ridiculous deals, fixed rates that are, you know, the lowest they've ever been, cashback, which they don't even need to do, but it's like $4,000 to come, you know, swap to us. So the banks are flooded with all these refinances. And then you've got uh, ACCC just released a report and, there's this loyalty taxes in the paper and the RBA. So, you know, you've got, you know, millions of home loan customers really reconsidering to refinance. And that's been, so that's flooding the bank's credit teams. And then a lot of the way that banks assess these loans is they offshore it. You know, they go to India or they go to Philippines and all those areas aren't able to hire and they're losing staff and they're not able to sort of process anywhere near amount of loans. So, it's a real nightmare at the moment, especially with pre-approvals. If you're thinking about buying, a lot of banks are saying, no, nah, we don't want to do any of them. They're just not going to convert for us. You're going to have to go somewhere else for a pre-approval. If it's a purchase, yeah, we'll take you on as a customer. But potentially, you know, we, we've just started doing a lot of work with NAB and it was 
We went there because they were much quicker. You know, you know, Ben has just said this morning, you know, it's three weeks to get assessed. So it's like whenever there's a, a, a bank that's a bit faster, people just swap. So you are thinking about doing something next year. Definitely get your finance, um, you know, sorted and stay very close to your broker because, you know, things will change, you know, policy, bank offers, et cetera. So you're going to, it's a key element to be buyer ready um, when the market's hot. You want to be able to push the button when the right property comes on. Totally. I just found that and I wrote that blog in November 2017. So okay. that was obviously as the market had passed its peak and that's when the agents were like, what the hell's going on? You know, and that's mm-hmm. falling and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that sort of explains, yeah. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. So, yes, yeah, so I guess moving into 2021, yeah. you know, this, this, there's lessons in history, you know, and, and I'll have to dig out one of my other blogs as well, which is basically tracing all these booms, all these busts, all these booms, all these busts. There's nothing new in this, you know. So it's like, well, what is new? It, it, it sort of does get a bit boring. We just say the same thing over and over and over again. <laughs> and so if we head into 2021 and it's going to be booming, then we have to still focus and keep focused on what is the right property to buy? What is a good asset? How do we work out what to pay for it? How do we not get completely um, caught up in the emotion and the fear and all that sort of stuff that's going on? How do we just, you know, get zen about this? I think you're exactly right. Like I think in a hot market, it's so easy to feel FOMO um, and pain because you can miss it at auction. You can get all excited. Something can, can wait three or four weeks planning your furniture and getting quotes on renovations and all these sort of things. And you go to the auction, you get blown out in the first offer. Um, and so you just don't want to go through that pain again. And so I think, you know, two things. One, get professional help by a great buyer's agent in that market that you want to help to make sure that, you know, you're, you're acting not as emotional as you should be um, and you're ultimately getting a, a quality asset and you're getting the upper hand at the negotiation, which I uh, buy, uh, you know, a property, what's it, the boot camp today will, We'll kind of go through that in a bit more detail. But if you look at just the, I guess, the data, I mean, consumer confidence is through the roof. Uh, and I do like these surveys, you know, Westpac do them, NAB do them, uh, ME Bank. And they really, you know, survey people and say, how, how, how confident are you about, you know, the economy or business confidence, et cetera. Um, and I do think they, they really show the roller coaster of people. And I think the interesting one, the Westpac, where it says the time to buy index, and that's kind of the highest really it's ever been. I, I think from when I last looked at it. Um, and so that shows that Australians think it's a good time to buy, which obviously encourages people to go out and look at property, et cetera. So, um, and it just shows that Australians don't know anything about property because a good time to buy was in 2018, not now. <laughs> it needs all of them to think that it's a good time to buy for the prices to rise. <laughs> it's just nuts. No, exactly right. So it's not something you should uh, wait for that to be high and then you can't uh, buy that. No. It shows that the sheep uh are falling for, you know, are, are kind of excited, I guess. Interest rates, um, without doubt, you know, RBA used to say for years, interest rates don't affect property prices. Like it was just defied common sense that it, that it did. And they had to admit 
in a report a couple of years ago that they do. Um, and when you've got, you know, variable interest rates at like 24 2.5%, um, when you've got fixed rates for five years at 1.99, um, investors can borrow for five years at 2.49 interest only. So interest rates without doubt drive a lot of behaviour, but I think buyer preferences will will be driving. Also, you know, people will be not willing to compromise like they did prior to COVID, I don't think, um, and they're willing to go a bit further than they would um, if they can get a bit more land and a bit more house. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's definitely some behavioural change that has come about and I think we can expect to continue into 2021. Um, and I think too, I would encourage anyone who's got a bit of time over the Christmas break and maybe we should put in the show notes here just a, a, a hot links, if you like, back to all our coronavirus episodes because, you know, mm. we have all the um, beginning of lockdown, you and I got a whole bunch of guests on to talk about. We had, you know, Shane Oliver, Eliza Rowan. We had Stuart Weems on. We had, oh, who else did we have? Oh, had Mark uh, Yarny. We had uh, Pete Wargent. We had heaps of really good thinkers in this space and people with amazing access to data that, that came on and gave their ideas and, and predictions and, and mm. what they thought was going to happen. So I would say, you know, we, as I said, we'll put a list in there so that you've got easy access to them. But And I'm going to do that myself. You know, it's great to review this and say, well, what do we think was going to happen and what did happen? What mm. were the people we were asking back then? What were the fears that we all had back then? How has it played out? And obviously COVID-19 is still playing out, but... But I think that I guess the whole the whole market's going to fall off a cliff. Everyone's going to lose a job type thinking certainly has proven not to actually transpire. And in, in the opposite now as well is that, you know, every day it's like REI was reading this morning, you know, it was all over the AFR last week, you know, prices are going to be higher than 2017. Mm. And so the positive feedback loop is definitely starting Um and, you know, market's going to fall 30% now. It's like market's going to rise 30%. And so everyone just, that's going to create an overconfidence. It's going to bring a lot of investors back. Um, and, you know, if you've got to say you've got, um, you're in a pretty uh, strong position from an equity point of view and you've always been quite conservative. So you pay down your mortgage and your mortgage is very low right now. Even those clients are starting to come to us and say, well, maybe I should buy some investment property. Like the super conservative people, Wow. who've always been conservative, they're starting to come. So that to me is kind of like a sign to say, well, if they're thinking about taking action, what about the people who are a bit more aggressive and a bit more sort of always stretching their borrowing capacity? Mm. And so if you've got a, 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 say you've got a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank, you're only getting 1% on that money. So low rates force people to to invest. And that's what happened all the way through the, you know, the, the after the GFC. That really, you know, was one of the reasons why markets went through the roof is because rates were low. Um, and so, yeah, 2021 is going to be a tough year if, if you're not on the ball. You don't, you know, you get uh, potentially buy the wrong property. You might be overpaying, you know, that you might be all lots of things because I think it's going to be pretty hot um, where people get quite desperate quite fast. Yeah, and it's, yeah, just that keeping calm in these conditions is really quite difficult. A list of potential policy changes that we could quickly run through. Yeah. You know, we've talked about responsible lending and obviously there's talk about change legislation early in the year. There, in New South Wales, there's, there's uh, and we at stamp due the potential of stamp due to be removed or an opt-in, opt-out system and um, yep. to, to, you know, broad-based land mm-hmm. tax. And, of course, we had that conversation with Brendan Coates back in episode 153 not too long ago, if anyone's interested in that. Foreign stamp duty, 
what's on the cards there, do you think, Chris? You know, we, we put a huge uh, penalty on foreign money in the boom because it was really a way to sort of get some uh, brownie points with first-time buyers because first-time buyers are saying, oh, it's all the foreigners that are buying the property. That's why I can't afford to buy a property. So that was sort of a, a story that was out in the marketplace in the media. So the government said, oh, look, we'll put a big high stamp duty on them. And, you know, instead of 4%, it's 12%. So I can imagine that that's going to go because they won't change it. They can buy established property, but they don't have to pay this big surcharge because they're going to want something to sell to foreign investors, right? Because no one's buying the new apartments. Um, they're buying new house and land packages, but no one's buying apartments. So if they get rid of that foreign stamp duty, I think that'll create a bit more demand there. So I reckon something like that will happen. You already saw Home Builder, you know, 2.0, it got extended. So I reckon that's going to keep continuing. You know, access to superannuation, it's going to be a really big, you know, a big report came out that's potentially going to happen. Um, these are all positives in terms of creating more demand at a time when demand's already sort of pretty rife. Um, <laughs> and you've got QE2, which, you know, they don't really want to do, but ultimately if the world, you know, is struggling at a global level with, um, Chronic, trying to create economic growth, um, rates around the world will stay low. The government has to try to keep our exchange rate, you know, competitive. Um, and the only way to do that is probably to print money. So easing too, QE. Yeah, quantitative easing. Sort of, um, you know, they did 100 billion. They might do another 100 billion, right? Um, the budget probably, you know, there's always that saying, "Don't waste a good crisis," and <laughs> it's really an opportunity for the government to spend a lot of money. And so. I reckon the next budget's going to be pretty big, you know, in terms of spending on infrastructure and all that sort of stuff. So, because they'll be like, well, unemployment's at 7%, we've got to get that down. That's why we've got a huge, you know, um, deficit. So, the government may not need to extend the home builder scheme because, you know, they might have it, they might run into a shortage of trades. Yeah. And they're <laughs> renovating anyway. Yeah, that's right. It's a good problem to have. And, but I think that ultimately, you know, trying to create jobs is, is going to win votes at the moment. But it's interesting, we might always sound positive and there's always no risks, but ultimately <laughs> there's always big risks. I can go back every year. Um, at least Trump's not on that list. <laughs> oh, oh, we still a risk. I mean, at this, at this stage, just digress just for a minute, he's not out of that Oval Office yet and um, until Biden's inaugurated and even after. I mean, it can be a massive one on the side. But I just was checking out Worldometer this morning. It's one of those, those, those uh, websites that I sort of check out every now and then. 295,000 dead yeah. in the US. That's, you know, and, and the predictions are, the, the, the forecasts are for 400,000 dead before Biden's inaugurated. Um, that's just criminal. Yeah, and even if it's not just the deaths, it's really the cases. I, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm a corona expert. And there's enough of those out there. But I think um, the real the amount of cases per day is, is, you know, and there's zero control. The vaccine as well, I mean, we're not going to go there as well, but, you know, uh, do people, you know, the anti-vaxxers, um, you know, they're not just the only people not willing to take a new vaccine because no one really knows. So <laughs> I think that's going to be interesting. Is there a third one? You know, that's why we're freaking out. As we, so as we record this, the vaccine, as I think of yesterday, um, is being released in the UK. So Pfizer's yep. So, yeah, how that plays out, we don't know. And how effective that's going to be, we don't know. And there's, there's yes, you know, normally there's, what, 10 years spent, developing vaccines and this has all been done in 10 minutes so yeah um yeah it's there's a hell of a lot of unknowns as to how that's going to transpire and does that send us back to normal or what you know who knows we just got to just do what we do know what we know today well that's right if we get a third wave um 
that we're going to go to another lockdown. You know, I, I think that that will be what happens. You know, they don't want to get this far and then not lock down again. And so... Doing in um, Europe, you know, um, third lockdown. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the, the impacts of that really, we're not going to get the tourism from global, you know, our CBDs. Um, I had family visiting from Melbourne um, this week, actually. You know, they've been a tough year down there for them. But, mm. you know, we went around and saw the Opera House. It was dead. You know, for the place that usually, in the middle of December, um, mm. usually it used to get, you know, I think it was the number one tourist attraction in Australia. But, you know, there was no one. You know, you could actually get a seat at Opera Bar and have some lunch, you know. Like it's just, it's pretty crazy, beautiful day as well. So you couldn't even say it with the weather. But, <laughs> you know, so the, the, global, the CBDs, you know, getting people back to the CBD uh, and the tourism, that's where most overseas travel hits, you know. The rural travel, that's going to be, you know, it's going crazy. You know, you look at places. And so the tourism, you know, in the rural locations will go through the roof because Aussies will travel around the home. So there's no real problem to our economy there. It's just the our CBDs and all the thing, businesses that thrive off that um, tourism. And I think the Chinese relationship, I'm not going to make too much comment on that one, but, you know, it is something that, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, we've got to be careful with. Uh, and I think that what we're already seeing with the, a lot of people, um, the media love to write articles and say, you know, in September they said that the market was going to crash because of payment holidays and JobKeeper was going to end. Well, that all got extended. And so even if we get to a point next year when payment holidays are finishing their last four months, so six months plus four months, CBA have already said that they are going to extend it. So, you know, they're trying to get a, a, a if you didn't have problems paying your mortgage prior to COVID, um, then you can potentially get even longer. And mm. so uh, I don't think the payment holidays is really something to be too worried about. It's already falling dramatically. Yeah. Um, and the same as JobKeeper. You know, there is, there's rules around getting JobKeeper from a business revenue point of view. Mm. Um, and who's to say the government just doesn't extend it to those businesses that are really struggling still? So, well, I guess when you think about when, when that rolled out and that was, it was great and swift and, and we needed that feeling of the government's got our back and we're supported and so we don't have to really freak out and panic. And I remember that feeling myself you know, mm. back in April and, um, you know, and, and yes, we qualified for the first quarter, but we certainly don't qualify now. And so it was, it was, it was really good to just know that, okay, we're, we're okay for the moment. We don't have to panic. And I think that's probably one of the object- objectives of it. But of course, because it had to be so swiftly rolled out, it, it, they can't put red tape in early on. You know what I mean? They have to basically get that money out there and into the economy. And now I guess they can finesse it and fine tune it and actually and, and direct it more to where it's needed. And hopefully they do. So, and, you know, mm. absolutely, you know, those CBD businesses and obviously oh, hospitality has been so hard hit and, um, you know, there's, there's certain industries that, uh, or certain, uh, yeah, certain industries that that have ongoing need um, because, you know, the businesses will be viable once we're no longer in the grip of a pandemic. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So I think, you know, going into next year, it's all about buying quality assets, which I don't think is any different to last year. I don't think it's different. To that message will never change. Yeah, it's, ne- it's always got to be about that and it's a quality over a quantity. Um, but I think... The hard part is we're probably more likely going to see more quality properties come on. I think you probably agree with that, Veronica. That's what, you know, when prices rise, we generally get more supply and better quality assets. Do you think that's? It, 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 uh, yes, it does Hopefully. happen. I, I think that <laughs> the problem is when prices are rising is a buyer's ability to discern between a good asset and a bad asset is, is diminished. And I yep. think that, that's the challenge for buyers. And 
And I think also, and interestingly enough, I've been having conversations with a number of agents as well. I love this sort of on the ground, you know, what's happening because these are all the rumblings of, of what's ahead or, or what's about to happen. Yeah. And, you know, one is that, look, vendors' expectations on price are mm. stratospheric. Now, what happens when that happens, right? So the vendors' expectations rise and for a period of time, buyers may rise to meet them. And some of these vendors then, they're quite disappointed because they didn't get their ridiculous price, but they they got an amazing price, but they can't see it. And then there's a point where the vendors just get just a little bit out of reach of the buyers and the buyers just go, no, nah, you're kidding me, no way. They're not. Mm. I've been... You know, in nearly every boom, there's a point at which things happens. You can go to auction, they can be competitive. And then you, you're just going, you're kidding me. We haven't hit reserve yet. You're joking. And buyers yeah. say, nah, I'm not doing it anymore. And so when that happens, clearance rates start to fall. And then there's this sort of commentary around, oh, price is falling, da 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 da, market's going tanking, blah, blah, blah. It's actually not necessarily the market tanking when clearance rates, clearance rates fall. It can be very much a reflection of how out of control the vendors are. So, you know, and I already we're getting some rumblings of that. And of course, these these owners, a lot of this stock is off market stock that's coming on the market now because the agents, mm. some of them agents that haven't gone on holidays mentally, you know, are still quite are still working and they're putting these properties on and we're going through them and it's like, yes, clients keen, let's let's see if we can work a deal or hang hang five. Um, they now want an extra couple hundred thousand. Like, yeah, oh, well, that's a shame because my client was prepared to pay fair market value, but that's not fair market value. And they're not. And one of the agents said to me, they're not feeling the fear of 2021. Yeah, they're not fearful that they're going to taking a risk by waiting, and so well, that's, that's also going to yeah. hold. That's going to keep listings down. Mm, you're right. Actually, I think that uh, everyone values what they own more than it's actually worth. It's just a behavioural bias. And something you want to buy, you think it's worth less than it's worth. I mean, you want to get a bargain, um, you want to get a good deal. As soon as you buy that property, though, you think it's worth more than what you paid. It's so easy to think your property is worth more than it is. Mm. And, you know, you see a sale just up the street. There's one on my street um, just up the road, and I'm like, oh, it's sold for that. And I'm like, oh, that means the must be worth this. And, you know, like, and I'm like just laughing at myself thinking, and the reality is you start trying to justify it. Well, mine's got this and mine's got that. And, you know, and it's so, you know, and then you think, well, I'm not going to sell mine. If I, if I was thinking of selling, I'm not going to sell mine for anything less than this because that's what they got. And, you know, ultimately you're starting to look past all the reasons why they ultimately got that price. It was a really competitive, the time it sold, what else was on the market. And, yeah, and so you can see vendors can easily get overconfident um, based on sales and just, what they read in the papers. And before we get into the boot camp, which we promised you mm. earlier, there's some good juicy tips in that, so just hold five. I'm going to give you a quick dumbo. So this <laughs> really, I guess, the theme of this episode is that there's nothing new in the world. It's all happened before and if there's different stimulus and different macro things happening, at, at the end of the day, what translates into the property market is the way people react to it and that's where there is nothing new. And so mm. go back in time, and this is a little story from when I was a sales agent and the market was hot. This would have been probably about 2002, maybe 2001. Hot, 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 crazy, 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 great time to sell property. And, in fact, in 2001, just before September 11 hit, as in literally the towers came down, I had a 100% clearance rate up to the September 15 that year. 
And, you know, and then everyone did the same thing. Oh, my God, what's going to happen in the end of the world? Prices are never going to rise again. This is really going to impact us. What's this going to happen? Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then, you know, we sort of limped to the end of that year and then the next year it took off again. And the boom went right through to September 2003. So there's a good case study, right, for, for big, unprecedented things, immediate reaction by people sitting on their hands and going, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then it's like, oh, let's get on with business. So, Around about that time, there was this, there's a show on television. It wasn't Location, Location, Location Australia, but I think it might have been Location, Location. You know that one with um, Michael Capon? And mm-hmm. it was an auction or one of those shows anyway. And there was this case study of a, of a couple had a house in Balmain. And, of course, I was selling in Balmain at the time. And there was this hapless local agent, and he didn't stay in real estate very long, this guy. <laughs> he was a fairly new agent. And he got this listing and it was going to auction and this, the people that owned the house had ridiculously high expectations. And it was quite funny because it was this, there was, they'd had friends for lunch, you know, on the balcony at the back of their house. And it was an awful house, actually, because one of my colleagues ended up getting the listing after this guy didn't get it. And, and we all went through it. It was horrible. Had a cave for a bit. It was a terrible house. But you know, definitely C grade. But anyway, so it struggled. Of course it struggled because they had these things wrong with it. But they're all sitting out in their deck, having lunch with the friends and and shardy and all that sort of stuff as you do, talking about the auction. Oh, of course it's worth, you know, it might have been 800000 back then or a million dollars, whatever it was. Of course it's worth that, you know, that much. It's in Balmain. And it's like, it's like this sort of attitude by these people and their friends that, look, people will pay whatever in Balmain, right? So the guy is takes it to auction, it's a total fizzer. You know, there's a few buyers on it, but they're not they're not really that active. Um, the vendor's expectations are off the Richter scale. And he's got this this lonely, you know, end shot of um, this guy, the agent, walking up the lane, carrying his signboard, his head bowed, all dejected. <laughs> Another day in real estate. <laughs> <laughs> I just, anyway, when those people sold, because it was sold by a colleague of mine um, subsequently, look, they'd had offers in that campaign. There were a lot more than they ultimately sold for. And that's where the Dumbo is. They, mm. they were convinced the market was so hot that people will pay whatever they wanted. You know, it's in Balmain, don't you get it, buyers? It's, I think it's worth this. And so therefore you should just be prepared to pay it because. And, and it was a pretty unattractive sort of attitude on a vendor's part, and sometimes they have that attitude. And it's certainly, as I said, there were there were probably I don't I don't remember the exact figures, but I know that they they sold for significantly less than than offers they'd had through that campaign. Yeah. And so that's a danger, and particularly if you've got a C grade property. Yeah, 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 exactly. If you've got a property that you're getting great offers on uh, versus a grade A property where it's super hot, and you you know you probably can have that mentality that it will get be hot on auction day in three weeks' time because of all the open homes, et cetera. Um, people are dying to buy into your street. So the local buyers want it, you know, out of town, you know, et cetera. Everyone wants your property, then, yeah, maybe you can take a little bit more risk with the good offers. And that yeah. kind of leads us perfectly into a real problem that I'm seeing at the moment um, with clients that, you know, you can already feel that sort of FOMO. Maybe it's the time of year a little bit as well, but, it's definitely something I've been noticing over the last couple of months um, where clients are coming that, that, you know, they really found a property. They're potentially not doing the due diligence on that property, which is a side issue. But let's say they've done that um, and they go, well, now let's, let's go. I'm ready to make an offer. And what do I offer for this place? 
you know, and, you know, can you help me with this? And my answer to this is, well, not really, because to do that properly, there's a lot of time involved to do it properly and a lot of knowledge you need on that local market. So how do you think buyers should go about this? Let's say they don't use a buyer's agent. Um, Veronica, what's, what's some of the thought process that people need to go through when they're, you know, really trying to value a, a property and make an offer? Well, for starters, what I'll say is that uh, in the show notes, I'll put a link in there for Home Buyer Academy's free course and yep. how to price a property. So th- I'll tell you, you don't have to take any notes because you can actually download that free mini course and do it yourself. And this is is basically the process that we would take as buyer's agents in that, and I'll run you through what that is right now. Now, as buyer's agents, there is a process, absolutely, but local knowledge is so important to give insight mm-hmm. at every step through that. And we've got to understand each sale that we compare with the current the property we're looking at, you know, there's there's a story behind each one. So the more you know, the better <laughs> you are going to be informed to be able to make a call as to whether you should push yourself or not for this particular property you're looking at. And so step one, you need to become a local expert, right? So this is our boot camp for today, right? You need to become a local expert. So mm. what I two things I see people do wrong. Uh, in fact, I'll say a lot of people do a lot of things wrong, but two things I see people do wrong. One is that they say, oh, the market's hot. I just have to pay whatever. I have to go to my limit, you know, to buy a property. Mm. And they they fail to then consider that some properties, yeah, you might need to go to your limit and others you shouldn't, you know. So there's this lack of discernment, as I think I mentioned that word earlier. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that they often don't do is that they add, or sorry, the mistake that they make is they add a percentage onto whatever the agent yeah. is. And that's really dangerous because agents have different methodologies for how they quote. Yes, there's legislation, but at the end of the day, different agents, different methodologies. Some of them make mistakes. Some of them actually deliberately underquote. Some of them try to quote realistically and others actually um, accidentally quote high. So there's no rhyme to it. In fact, I keep a spreadsheet as uh, tracking where properties have sold versus what was quoted and also when we've done the price research, what our upper limit was on that. And in a rising market, there's, as I said before, there's, there's prices, properties that you might be prepared to pay a premium for. Well, those properties, you know, recent sales would indicate that a price might be X. And really for those properties, you, you have to look at putting a 5% premium on top of that in order to secure it if it's a good property. Um, whereas some of the quotes, the, the sale prices over the agent's side have been up to 30% higher anything from 4% to 30%. So if you just go in there and say, right, I'm just going to slap 10% on every property, well, you can see automatically where the problem is with that. So there's are two things that we see buyers do all the time. So how do you get around that, right? Well, you get around that by, as I said, becoming a local expert. And if you're not prepared to put the groundwork in and do that, you need to hire someone to do it because you can't easily throw away so much more than the fee you would pay a buyer's agent purely because you don't get it. You Mm. don't know what's going on and you just think it's all about the price. It isn't all about the price, not all the way, all the time. And so what we do, we and and the the process you'll you'll get in the free course if you do it, is to actually spreadsheet this, go through line by line, looking at recent sales and assessing them against the property you're looking at is it better than, similar, less than, and really going through. And then you need to adjust them for market movement because, you know, this is something mm. you do quite scientifically and it's a very difficult thing to do. But you do need to say, well, if it sold three months ago, 
would it sell for the same price today or a bit more or a bit less? And so you need to adjust. Now, valuers don't actually do these adjustments. This is more than a valuer does. A valuer will look at recent sales. They don't actually make a call in terms of what's the market doing. They just look at values. Um, And so we need to adjust them because we need to be prepared. Is the market falling? In which case we don't want to be paying too much by relying on something was three months ago. Is the market rising? We don't want to miss, you don't want to run the risk of missing out because we're not paying attention to a rising, you know, anchoring our limit to something that sold three months ago. We're going to miss Mm. out. We keep missing out. So, so by going through this process of literally going through line by line, looking at the links, and we do it online, but also if you've been active in the market, you've been out there inspecting these properties, you know which ones are better, which ones are less than, right? Yeah, that's key. So you, you track that all out, spreadsheet that. Then you've got to say, okay, well, that's all good. I can pretty much see where this property should sit, unless you've got a really, really unique property, in which case you really should go and get a buyer's agent yeah. because unique properties are very tough to negotiate, uh, sorry, to um to price and you do need to come at them from various different angles and, and we always we've got a number of different layers and, and ways that we look at property but most properties you can use the comparable sales um process. Mm. now when you get to the end of that you've got your spreadsheet you're looking at all of that some of the questions to ask yourself is mm, how common or how readily available is this sort of property mm. and if you over the last six months, and try to keep these recent sales within six month period as well. I mean, you can go twelve month, but um, you know, the further back you go, the harder it is to really adjust the prices. And sometimes you need to go further afield if you don't have enough recent sales. You might need to look at the next suburb, but you sort of got to adjust that as well. You might have to adjust up or down according to how that suburb is in terms of popularity, as long as the properties are similar, right? Mm. So by doing all these adjustments, you think. How likely is it that I will find another property that will suit my needs based on this evidence of what has actually sold? Mm. How likely am I going to find something else? And because if it's a low probability, then that's a good argument to start thinking, okay, I need to push myself a bit harder. on yeah. If it's a high probability, good argument for not pushing yourself too hard. Mm. You think, okay, how good is the property really? Like how popular is this one that I am always going to find a future buyer for? Or is it one that's a bit unique to me and I want it because it's got all these features, but really and truly how yeah. many buyers are like me? Yeah. Because that sort of scarcity, scarcity can be a really good thing in property and it can also be a death knell. So mm. scarcity and popularity, those two things go hand in hand. Yep. Consider paying a premium. Scarcity, uniqueness to your needs and nobody else's needs don't need to pay a premium. And this is where a lot of buyers get in. They go get so unstuck and they pay massive overs. I say so many clients, hundreds of thousands of dollars in this part of it because they can't divorce themselves from the rest of the market. Yeah. And they love it and they can't understand why everybody else doesn't love it. And they make offers prior to auction quite often. Um, and they're ridiculously high and unnecessary offers. And agents will play on that. Oh, my God, they'll sniff that out and they will say, mm. if they're trying to get an offer out of your prior, you might be one of those buyers, you know. So yeah. so understanding and looking at it through these various lenses is really important because you have to try to be dispassionate. And mm. then, then once you've sort of worked out what you think it's worth, then you've got to say, right, well, what am I prepared to pay for it? Yeah, and uh, and pressure test yourself before you get to the auction or before you start making offers, because if you don't test yourself and say, okay, what if a buyer pays ten grand more than that? Would I pay it or wouldn't I not? 
If the answer is, oh, well, yeah, I would, I don't want to, but I would, then your limit has to be at least that. Then you go another 10. And then you get to the point where you go, oh God, no way. I feel sick if I paid that or I can't afford it. There's another one. If I can't afford it, I can't afford it. But that's the time to go to your limit. Only then when you really know that it's a good asset, it's a scarce asset, other people will also be wanting that asset. And you know you are at risk of not being able to afford it when it comes up next time. Those are the reasons that you would um, you would push yourself and but you have to consider that with evidence, not just because the rest of the market's going up at its home. Yep. And so under those circumstances is when you would push yourself. But the problem is that people push themselves when they're feeling FOMO and they feel mm. like it's out, but the reality is actually not quite the same. And so you've got to divorce yourself from how you're feeling and the fear you're feeling from actually what is going on and what's more probability, you know, what's more probable. And once you sort of do that and you pressure test your limit before you enter negotiations, then, you know, and really push yourself beforehand, yeah. really yourself, because when you're in the middle of the auction, it is not the time to do that. And when an agent is pushing you to make an offer because they're really ramping up that FOMO, look, someone else is going to buy it, someone's, you know, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. if they will do, then you've got to be saying, okay, am I willing to call their bluff? And if I am, that's okay, but I have to be prepared to let that property go. Mm. Or do I go in hard because I know and I'm confident that this is the right property. I'm confident that I will have to wait too long for another one and I'm confident with the pricing. And when you, yeah. you know those three things, you can go in hard and you can, you know, you can act decisively and hopefully knock your competition out. So, I mean, I'll give you a little example. For instance, we're pricing a property at the moment for a client. Um, to be honest, the client really liked it, but I've never really, there's always been something niggling at me with this particular property and I couldn't really, mm. it, so we kept digging, digging, digging. And it what it turned out, it's been renovated and some things haven't been finished. And I kept saying, where's the approval for this renovation? It's an apartment. Where's the approval? I can't see the approval. I'm not confident with the approval. Kept Asia kept saying, but it's only minor. It's only minor. I'm like, yeah, well, they've waterproofed a balcony. That's not minor. Looks like they've changed some doors. That's not minor. They've changed the flooring. Have they had approval? You know, I mean, these things really yeah, are. Yeah. They're sort of, you know, just batting batting me away. And I'm like, I'd, I'm not happy with that. The strata report was insubstantial. I've gone back asking for more. So we kept going back and asking for more, more, more. We'd done the pricing on it. Um, look, you know, uh, even then, there was it was a bit wishy washy because there's there's comparables with parking, comparables without parking. It was a quite a hard one to pin down, but mm. I wasn't gonna, wasn't going to land on a final figure until I could be certain about the approvals of the yeah. work done on the property. So with that sort of sitting in the wings, I've got a sort of vague idea about really where it's going to sit, but I want I want more information before I fine tune it. In the meantime, the, the agent starts the dialogue around, oh, there is another buyer on it, and. Um, <laughs> Offer hasn't been accepted, but contract changes have been made and all this really vague stuff. And I'm like, has, you know, how are you going to bring this to a close? And all very vague. So I said to the client, look, there's a risk that really is a buyer. Um, but this is also dialogue that we used to try to get urgency and they're getting annoyed with us because we can up asking for more, more things and yeah. they don't want to give it. And the fact that they don't want to give it is a warning sign for me and I'm, I'm not in yeah. a rush to get you into that property. And in the meantime, they've managed to manufacture an offer out of a buyer. Now, I doubt that it was the buyer they were telling me about because I think they used the same dialogue with anybody that was interested in the property. And the yeah, and then someone bought, 
flush yeah. someone out and get someone to bite and they've done it. So yeah. it's not the same person or inverted commas because I don't think that first person actually existed, mm. but I, one buyer has taken the bait. Yeah. And so, yeah, exactly. So, the, you know, it looks like, and that's pretty interesting because the buyer then in that situation said, well, they weren't, telling, they weren't lying to me because they didn't mm. actually tell it. Well, no, they were lying, but someone yeah. felt why. <laughs> exactly. So, I think what's really interesting about that whole process, and it's a process, and that's the key thing here. It's not just let's just have a crack at it and let's just pull out a magic 10% above the guide or let's just speak to the – I think there's a few things, the story around the comparables, it's really hard if you're just new to the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then you don't really know the story about why did someone overpay, you know, why was that a, a really good deal, you know, a motivated vendor or, you know, there's lots of different. So that story element, I think – you can probably get that from the agents a little bit easier because they'll probably, you know, express things that they wouldn't say to the punter on the street. Um, and then just trying to adjust it to market. I think that's a really key point as well, which I'm sure a lot of people don't do. Uh, but then ultimately the scarcity, you know, how likely are you going to be able to find this property? You know, is it going to come up every month or is it going to be maybe once or twice a year? Um, and the future scarcity I think is really cool as well because, you know, if you if it's scarce today, that doesn't always mean it's going to be scarce. You know, mm-hmm. things can change. New developments. Um, you know, you know, three beds at the moment are quite scarce. But us, a three bed apartment's going to be scarce in ten years' time. We just don't know. Um, and you know, uh, so yeah, the future scarcity. So so much gold in there, and hopefully, you know, buyers can realise that they need a process and get ready before you make offers. It's like get your finance ready before you make offers. Oh yes. Get, get, do your building and pest before you start in a negotiation. Don't say subject to this, subject to that, subject to this. I think, you know, it's not that costly. Yes, there's a bit of time. Just get your ducks up and, and ready and then go in hard knowing what, how to play, how, how you want to play it rather than playing the games that the agents want to play with you. So uh, I will, I will add that. one thing in there, though, that you and I mm. are both based in New South Wales, and so the process in New South Wales does differ from other states. Yeah. And certainly in, in New South Wales, because you do have an exchange um, process, and that means that you you can either get a cooling-off period or you do all this stuff before you exchange and actually, um, you know, and waive your cooling-off period, right? But the reality is that uh, I 100% agree. You need to do as much as possible before you actually negotiate. Now, if you're buying in Brisbane, for instance, or Queensland, then you can actually make your offer conditional on all these things. But the big issue there is that you need to know what you need to make it conditional on. Otherwise, you get yourself shot in the foot. And yep. honestly, after really after you know working with uh, Megan on Home Buyer Academy and going into detail in terms of the process in different states, Queensland is probably the most risky for buyers. And I'm actually shocked anyone anybody buys without a buyer's agent there, because mm. you can easily waive your cooling off period. You don't need a lawyer to do that. You do need a lawyer to do that in New South Wales. Um, you. The contract and the disclosure from vendors in New South Wales is a, lo- a hell of a lot higher than it is in Queensland. And mm. to some degree, Victoria is quite similar to New South Wales, but there's some differences there as well. But certainly in Brisbane and in Queensland, you, you can sign an offer, you can sign a contract, you can waive your rights to cooling off period, you can, you can basically commit yourself. And then you don't realise all the stuff that then gets discovered through the actual settlement process that you could have got out of that property had you known. But if you didn't put your all these terms on your contract in the first place, you can't get out of it. And so you can discover mm. that you're in a flood zone. You had no idea 
right? You'd have no idea before signing that contract and you could discover you're in a flood zone and you can't get out of it if you did not put that as a clause. Mm. Uh, the place the place is being eaten alive by termites and you can't get out of that unless you had a subject to, you know, on, yeah. on a clause. So these are really important things that people need to get in the right order and pricing is a massive part of it, but this is why it's so important to slow down rather than speed up because people rush in and they buy stuff and then you're stuck. Yeah, I mean, that's funny you say that was one thing that's, I guess, a little bit tough at the moment is a lot of people subject to finance clause um, mm. or they have a 10-day cooling off because they think in their head, they well, that's when they'll get the finance sorted. Um then they'll go to a broker or a bank and they'll say, look, yeah, I've got this finance call that's in two weeks. Now trying to turn over a, an application from, you know, no decision on what bank, mm. haven't got your documents ready, um, you know, haven't signed out any issues with your credit, all these sort of things, and then all of a sudden expecting that that broker or bank's going to turn that around in, in one or two weeks yeah. um, when banks are, you know, are dealing with things the way they are at the moment, it's just yeah. impossible. And so... Mm. Even a subject to finance court is pointless because you won't get the finance back in two weeks. Um, yeah. And so, you, you, you know, you might want to make it subject to finance, but that's after you've already been pre-approved um, mm. prior and you know that you're buying well within your pre-approval, you know it's a good property. So it's really a tick-the-box exercise for the bank. But even they are really struggling at the moment just because banks are just pretty awful. So. Um, be really careful buying with the subject finance cause without even having a pre-approval because yeah. you won't get it turned around in that time. Yeah, the process, the order, right. I mean, it's it's sort of, it, that underpins that. It's just one other example of, you know, what we do in the Home Buyer Academy course, the Your First Home Buyer Guide, because people get stuff in the wrong order all the time. They just don't know that they're costing themselves money or they're getting themselves into real hot water. So, um, but anyway, we don't want you to get in hot water, which is why we did this episode. We want you to be well prepared for <laughs> and uh you know happy new year <laughs> yeah <laughs> happy new year everyone and thank you for listening and we really appreciate it and um, look forward to the conversations in 2021 absolutely first home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase join me on wednesday nights at 7 30 p.m sydney time on the home buyer academy facebook page for live q a check out the website homebuyeracademy.com.au every month my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks the best rates changing policy and their service we also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.